Hello and welcome to another edition of the Marion Consort podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Artistic Director of the Marion Consort. Today we'll be exploring the life and music of one of the Renaissance's more enigmatic figures, Jean Maillard, and I'll also be chatting to good friend of the Marion Consort, Professor John Bryan. At this point, I think it's probably fair to say that even the more ardent lovers of Renaissance polyphony among you are probably thinking, who's Jean Maillard? And fair enough. Although the French musicologist François Lesure, writing nearly 50 years ago, described Maillard as one of the most important French composers of the 16th century, he's received very little attention since then. I first came across Maillard's music through a series of fortunate accidents. I was investigating a particular volume of music issued by the Parisian printers Le Roi and Ballard, and I happened to notice Maillard among some quite illustrious company in a series of single composer prints issued by the firm. Then shortly afterwards, in researching the Marion Consort's CD of music from the Dow Part books, I came across his name again, and was particularly surprised to see a piece by a relatively unknown French composer in a manuscript compiled by an English music collector. And this isn't the only place outside of France that Maillard's music turns up. His compositions appear in manuscripts and prints in Germany, Poland, the Czech Republic, Italy, Switzerland, Belgium, and notably in Spain, where nearly two dozen motets, most of them unique, are preserved in a volume in a Barcelona library. His pieces were also arranged for instrumental performance and published in these versions in both France and Spain. Despite this apparent contemporary renown, Maillard hasn't received the same interest from modern scholars or performers as that enjoyed by composers such as Orlandus Lassus, Josquin Desprez, Jean Mouton, uh, Nicolas Gombert, or even Jean Richefort, uh, all of whom coincidentally were also published by Leroy and Ballard. A principal reason for this relative neglect, I think, is likely to be that we know almost nothing about Maillard's life. We don't know when or where he was born or when he died, and there's really no evidence of any employment history. So there's no story on which to hang his music. What little we do know of Jean Maillard the man tells us of the esteem in which he was held by his educated, musically literate French contemporaries. Pierre de Ronsard, the French prince of poets, mentions Maillard as a disciple of Josquin, alongside such musical luminaries as Adrien Vellert, Clément Janequin, Jean Richafort, Jean Mouton and Jacques Arcarelt, in his dedication to the 1560 music collection Livre des Mélanges. This discipleship can, I think, be taken with a bit of a pinch of salt as it really probably speaks more to a kind of spiritual connection with Maillard and these other composers as successors to Josquin, rather than any kind of direct teacher-pupil relationship. The 1560 volume was published by Le Roi and Ballard, who were the imprimeur du roi, essentially by royal appointment, a bit like Bendix biscuits or Cadbury chocolate these days, I guess. And they were also responsible for publishing three volumes of Maillard's motets, from this and Maillard's other Parisian print appearances, we can assume that he spent at least part of his life as a resident in the city, possibly employed by, or at least connected to, the French royal court. This connection is given not only by this association with the royal printers, but also through the dedications of two of Maillard's motet volumes to the King of France 
and the Queen Mother respectively, and also by his setting to music of the text Domine Salvum Fac Regem, God Save the King. The only other direct mention of Maillard is in a rather less salubrious passage in François Rabelais' prologue to Book 4 of his Pantagruel, where Maillard again appears in the context of a list of composers, but this time imagined by the author singing rather bawdy songs in a private garden under some fine shady trees. Sadly, everything else beyond this is conjecture. François Lezure speculatively associated Maillard with two men maybe named Jean Maillard living in Paris around 1541, but no concrete record of his musical training, his youth, his employment history or his death, all of which are the bedrock of biographies of other composers of this era, survive. There is, however, a striking portrait printed at the opening of his first volume of motets. We can tell from this that Maillard certainly wasn't a looker, but beyond his nice fur coat and the customary selection of muses playing various musical instruments which surround him, there's a certain plaintive earnestness in Maillard's expression and a wonderful directness in his eyes, as if he's looking directly at you from four centuries ago. It's clear from this picture that he was in middle age at the time of the music's publication, so we can deduce that Maillard must have been born at some time in the first quarter of the 16th century. Several scholars have suggested that the dedicatory preface to the second volume of Maillard's motets, together with the composer's notable absence from Le Roi and Ballard's new collections issued after 1571, points to the possibility that he harboured Protestant sympathies. This is perhaps reinforced by the fact that later in his career, he set to music verses by the Huguenot poets Guillaume Guéroux and Clément Marot in polemically charged chansons spirituelles, which may have resulted in his exclusion from the circles of the Catholic royal court, and possibly even his banishment from France. The preface to the second volume of Maillard's motets, addressed to the Queen Mother, Catherine de' Medici, asks rather pointedly, Must this sweet work endure the stormy blows of our unhappy century, which chase away the most refined graces, or conceal them, buried beneath a dusty silence? No, no. You can reclaim them as your own, and return them to us, and rescue them from all dangers, for it is nothing but presumptuousness that banishes them from your France to enrich foreigners. These lines can easily be read as a personal plea for amnesty, with Maillard as one of the refined graces, forced into hiding and exile. The scholar Raymond Rosenstock even goes as far as to suppose that Maillard may, like his fellow composer Claude Goudimel, have been a victim of the 1572 St Bartholomew's Day massacres, which would explain why we hear nothing of the composer after this date. Such pronounced Protestant sympathies seem at odds, however, with the balance of Maillard's compositional output, which consists largely of Latin sacred works, many of which set Marian texts, as too does the particular connection that Maillard appears to have had with arguably the most Catholic of European countries at this time, Spain. What is clear is the popularity of Maillard's music. Not only was it extremely widely disseminated, but it also served as the inspiration slash model for new works by a large number of other composers. This list includes fellow Frenchman Goudimel, and also such eminences as Orlandus Lasses, Jakob Handel, and even Palestrina. Emulation of this type was, as I'll be hearing from John Bryan shortly, a conscious mark of respect, either out of a sense of competition, or in order to pay homage to an older master or a valued colleague. 
Mayach himself was no stranger to parody or imitatio composition, as no fewer than four of his six surviving masses are based on pre-existing musical models. A further connection with his contemporaries is his mass based on the beautiful chanson Je suis déshérité by Pierre Cadillac. This song forms the basis of a whole group of parody compositions, including masses by Nicolas Gombert, Lassus, Palestrina, and chansons by Pierre Certon and Jacotin Lebel. Maillard's motets also reveal traces of musical and stylistic borrowing, and are clearly indebted to the works of a previous generation of French composers, as well as the compositional innovations of his Flemish contemporaries. There's obviously not time here to talk about all 86 of the motets, so I'll just cherry-pick a very few of my personal favourites, many of which are notable either for their indebtedness to other music, or for inspiring new compositions in their turn. I'll start with the wonderfully dynamic Victime Pascali Laudes, This setting of the Easter sequence, which includes some remarkable moments of textural and melodic word painting, uses the plain chant sequence as a source for the motet's melodic material throughout its two parts, as well as occasionally quoting whole sections of it, as can be heard at the very opening. In doing this, Maillard recalls Josquin's own four-voice setting of this text, which features many of the same techniques. Maillard's In Pace is striking in its similarity to a setting of the same Compline Responsory by the earlier French composer Pierre Moulu. As with Moulu's work, Maillard composes polyphonic music only for the portions of the chant that would originally have been assigned to a soloist. The setting is, as a result, divided into three sections, with the emphasis on longer, more melismatic lines, a melisma being multiple notes for a single syllable of text. In this case, the whole first section sets only two words, this helps to evoke the kind of soporific overtones of the text, with only the passage at somnum oculis meis tending away from this arguably more old-fashioned style and towards Maya's more customary text-oriented, shorter melodic phrases. The six-voice Fratres Mei et Longa Verunt is probably the motet in which Maillard presents the most obvious display of his awareness of musical heritage in the form of a puzzle canon between its two tenor parts. So-called puzzle canons, which were very popular in the generation before Maillard, got their name from the often cryptic instructions that the composer, scribe or printer would give the performer as a clue to how to perform the piece, leaving them to figure out how the canonic part should be generated from the given line of music. In the case of Fratres Mei, the instruction in Latin is I must decrease, he must increase, 
a reference to the Gospel of John, which tells the perceptive singer that this is a mensuration canon, one related to the length of the notes and the speed at which the music should be sung, rather than the pitch. In Maya's case, it requires two resolutions, with neither tenor singing the music in its given printed values. Instead, one part sings the music twice as fast as printed, while the other sings it twice as slowly, creating a slow-moving cantus firmus. What's particularly clever is that not only does this complicated bit of compositional engineering result in a really beautiful piece of music, but also, as the text involves a repetition of the words recesserum amen, the motet closes with all parts singing the same thing. Maillard's four-voice In Me Transierunt enjoyed the widest circulation of any of his works, as well as being intabulated, that is, transcribed for performance by a single instrument. It also appeared as a teaching example in the German music theorist Gallus Dresler's treatise The Practica Modorum Explicatiorum of 1561. A bit like the Missa Je suis déshérité, it draws its emotional power from very subtle variations of texture, as in the stillness of the opening homophony. It's definitely not a coincidence that the only other setting of this text is by Lassus, Lassus enjoyed a special position as a personal friend of Adrien Leroy, even staying in his house on a visit to Paris, and a great deal of his music was issued by Leroy and Ballard's press. As such, he would undoubtedly have been familiar with the other composers whose works they published, especially someone who appeared in print as often as Maillard did, and it's tempting to imagine that the two men may have met at Leroy's house, sharing a drink and compositional ideas.
I'm delighted to be joined by John Bryan. Um, John is the Emeritus Professor of Music at the University of Huddersfield and is a member of the Rose Consort of Viles, who we know very well and have collaborated with uh, on a number of occasions, uh, including um, a disc where they recorded a piece by Jean Maillard. So um, that brings us to the topic of today's podcast, I think. So welcome, John. Thank you very much. Nice to see you again and hear you. <laughs> yeah, well, very nice to be chatting with you as well. Um, so rather than thinking specifically about Maillard, because um, we've already discussed quite a lot about his biography and, and some of his influences and his music, thinking more generally then about um, the music of continental composers in English manuscripts, because of course when we recorded our disc of music from the Tao Park books, the Roses recorded a piece, um, a motet by Maillard, Ascendo ad Patrem. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how it is that sometimes these pieces by continental composers make their way into these very kind of otherwise English collections. Well, I think one of the things that's easy for us to forget is that England was very much still part of a, a, a broadly European culture throughout the Tudor period. It's very easy to think of Queen Elizabeth fighting off the Spanish Armada and England being an island and having not very much to do with continental culture. But actually, all the way through the Tudor period, there were amazing connections between what was going on in the, on the continent and what was going on in this country. I mean, going right back to Henry VII, the first Tudor king, he actually spent his exile in France before he came back as, as English king, so knew all about French culture. Um, and in, in his reign, uh, Philip uh, of Burgundy got marooned on the English coast. His, his fleet that was sailing to Spain got, got uh, shipwrecked on the English coast, and he had his musicians with him, so the English court and the Flemish court would get together. Um, and right the way through the Elizabethan period, there were lots of connections, lots of visiting uh, continental musicians who came and, of course, not only brought their instruments with them to play, but would bring music with them. So um, I think there's a constant sort of exchange of ideas between continental musicians and English ones. And the only way, really, before much music printing was happening of collecting material was to copy it out yourself. So we have various uh, manuscripts that have survived, either for professional use or very often just by music lovers who one way of collecting their music, like we might collect our CDs, was to copy out the music they loved into a manuscript that they kept with them. Like, for instance, the Dow Park books. Exactly. I mean, Robert Dow is, is just one of several English gentlemen. He, he wasn't a professional musician um, who obviously was a great music lover and collected together material by his own contemporaries, such as William Byrd, um, but also by earlier composers and by uh, composers whose music he'd come across, whether they were English by birth or whether the music had turned up in London. Um, and I think there's a lot of, of swapping of music and, and people checking their manuscript collection against somebody else's and, and a bit like sort of stamp swapping or something. I, I've got a piece you haven't got. Um, should we do an exchange and so on? So often some, some sort of pop, pop, really popular pieces like um, Orlando Lassus's Suzanne Unjour crops up in lots of different English manuscripts. It, it was one of those sort of hit pieces that everyone wanted a copy of. I see. So yes, like stamps or maybe football stickers. That's the kind of yeah. Chris, Christian Ronaldo one that gets passed around. Um, and, and they do turn up in really surprising places because as well as obviously Robert Dow, who, um, given that he was based in Oxford and was involved in the uni university, was obviously quite um, well-educated and also well-connected, 
Um, you find continental pieces in these same private collections, things like the, the Sadler Park books, which were, of course, created by somebody who lived and spent his entire life, really, in, in Norwich, um, um, which, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but was not such a kind of a, a sort of seat of, um, of culture as, as Oxford, perhaps, at the time. Well, it would be a different sort of culture. Um, it wasn't a university city, of course, but um, it, it was a, an important cathedral with a, a group of choristers there. Thomas Morley was, was brought up and, and uh, worked in Norwich to start with. So I, I think it, you know, Sadler's work in and around Norwich, he would have come across um, music. And of course, we should remember that music was a sort of merchandise and would be transported with merchants and and Norwich as a great woolen city um there'd be, there'd be merchants coming from Flanders and so on and exchanging uh, merchandise but also bringing their songs with them um I mean that a bit later on in the century you get Musica Transalpina being published in London by Nicholas Young who, who tells us that this was the result of a group of gentlemen in London who liked to get together to make music and what they particularly liked was the latest music that had come from the continent with their their fellow merchants who, who brought them over um, and interestingly because they didn't speak Italian they didn't enjoy madrigals because they didn't understand the text so they they, they did what um, a lot of English musicians did with foreign music which was to ditch the words altogether and either fallar them sing them to the, the notes of the the scale uh, or play them on instruments, or in, in uh, Musica Transalpina's case, find someone who could write an English translation of the Italian poem that more or less fitted the music. Um, and I think one of the interesting things, for instance, about the, the, the Maya motet that we performed on the, the Dao recording, um, is that if you compare the notes that Dao uh, copied out in his book, they're actually slightly different, particularly with rhythms, than the, the version that... Um, would be sung by singers with my art because the words simply don't work in Dow's copy. Um, you, you get uh, no, sorry, no, that's that's wrong because he doesn't trans he doesn't transcribe the text. All he gives us is the title. Um, but if you tried to put the words of of the motet to what Dow has written down, they wouldn't fit. Um, for instance, he chops up long notes into lots of shorter ones sometimes, and at other times he ties or dots notes that were separate. So uh, a phrase like Alleluia turns out in the music as Ah, there's no way to put the Alleluia. <laughs> and so I guess that tells us something about uh, the likely performance of that piece, certainly as far as Dow was concerned, it would have been instruments then rather than voices. Is that right? Well, either, either instruments or fallowing. I think singers, singers would just put syllables to, to the music and they were used to learning their music by learning it as notes of the scale, of the hexachord. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that, that, that they did that. Morley, writing at the end of the century, criticises musicians for doing this. He says, what's the point of singing vocal music without the text? You don't understand what the, what the shape of the music's all about because a good composer will write music that fits the words beautifully. Um, uh, as far as instrumentalists are concerned, of course, um, a lot of the music from the Tudor period is vocal in origin, even if it was performed on instruments. Uh, even something as late as 1604 in John Dowland's great Lacrimae publication, one of the, the it's one of the it's only, only I think the second publication in England that mentions vials on the title page. This is music for vials. It's nearly all Dowland's own arrangements of his own songs. 
um, starting with Lacrimé, the Flow My Tears song, and then many of the dances, the, the galliards, are, he also uses as, as songs in his four-part airs. So, and then you get all the magical books published, apt for voices or vials, or for voices and vials. Um, and I think instruments and voices were seen much more as equals who could swap in and out of a, a piece rather than being very separate. These days we tend to think more separately of orchestral and vocal music as separate entities. But in chamber, chamber music of the Tudor period, um, you, you used whatever you had to hand. Well, I guess that's exactly it. It's also it's about the, the likely performance context, because, again, we think of a lot of this sacred music and we think of churches and chapels. But actually, a lot of this music, certainly um, as copied in these private collections, these manuscript collections, was intended for domestic performance, really, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting that one of the first books of music copied for, for, which says it's for voices or instruments, is copied actually in table book format. In other words, it's written so that you open the manuscript out on the top of a table and the music's all facing the edges. So you'd sit round it, literally, um, and be facing uh, people uh, singing or playing from the other side of the music. So that would only work in a, a smallish room where you can put the music on the table and sit round it with a maximum of maybe six or seven singers. I think there's, there's a couple of eight part pieces there. Um, or you have part books where you only have one line of music in each part book, and you can probably only get one or two people reading from each part book. So that limits the numbers. Um, there's a very interesting little manuscript in York Minster Library, which I, I looked at a, a while ago, which was copied in probably in the 1560s. And that again is full of English music by Bird, um, but also Italian madrigals and French chansons, but that's, that's actually written in score, which is very unusual in, in, the, in the Tudor period, so that all the parts align one over the other, like a modern vocal score. Um, so you wouldn't really be able to perform from that unless all four or five people were facing the same way with the, the, the little book on a, a desk of some sort. Um, and I think that was designed really as a repository. It was somebody's private little collection of pieces, uh, and it's literally small enough to slip in a pocket and you carry it around with you. Um, so again, that, that, that's not something that a, a choir would perform from. It's, it's personal music. No, well, I, I'm actually, it makes me think of something like the Baldwin Commonplace book, which again is unusual for, for being written in score. So I guess it's interesting then that the different formats, the ways the music was written out, tell us a great deal about the likely performing context and forces. That's right, I think. And, and um, it's interesting that only with music printing did multiple copies become much more available. And that doesn't come into England until nearly 100 years after it had become commonplace on the continent. Um, with Talis and Bird, of course, and their slightly ill-fated venture. Yes. Um, but uh, and, well, and I guess apart from anything else, yes, it's hugely time consuming and laborious to write out all that music by hand. So yes, if you can get away with finding ways around having to write out multiple copies of the same thing, then... Uh, than you would. I suppose then also in these domestic settings, the music would have been performed essentially, like you said, by whatever forces they had to hand. So quite often a kind of uh, what you'd call a broken consort. So a mixture of voices and different types um, and schools of instrument. Yes, and I think um, sometimes uh, lutes and organs, might, little house organs might play alongside vials and voices. Uh, we know from some of the family records that not only the members of a, of a wealthy family would sing and play together, but also some of their servants would play. Um, later on, certainly in the 17th century, sometimes servants were appointed because of their musical skills. 
So you, you, you might appoint a, a, a new butler or something because he was a good, a good base um, and could, could take part in family entertainments and so on. Um, and you get things like that, that famous report of William Byrd singing um, mass in, in a, a private home, in secret of course, um, using voices and instruments. So it's very easy for us to think of instruments as being only used for secular music, but I think they would also be used possibly in, in a secret uh, Catholic worship um, to support voices. You may not have all of the voices available, so if, you, if you're lacking a bass, you can stick it on a bass file. Um, and the other thing, which we haven't mentioned, of course, uh, going back to your earlier podcast about Bird and the secret Catholic music, um, it would be very dangerous, in fact, to perform some of these Latin motets with their words uh, where they might be overheard. Whereas if you're performing a Latin motet on a consort of vials, no one knows what the words are all about and you can get away with it. You can enjoy the music and not, not uh, have any fear of being uh, had up for, for having Catholic music on your Well, that's a sedition and treason. It is something that fascinates me because there does seem to be, and it's very hard, I think, for us at, at this historical remove to understand this kind of inherent tension between the music as commercial product, as you said, being printed and being um, widely publicised and circulated obviously because they wanted to make a profit, they wanted to make money off of it. And at the same time, this music being expression of the composer's personal faith, certainly in the, in the, in the case of Bird, his personal faith, and one which was potentially very, very dangerous. So you have all these collections of Cantione Sacre, sacred music, which they were selling, but which at the same time are seen to be this potentially not actually very covert, because a lot of the, the meaning, the subtext is pretty on the nose. Um, this kind of subversive commentary on the state of politics and religion in England. So that always fascinates me how they tread that very fine line between disseminating this music and then also not being chucked in the Tower of London, I guess. Well, your answer is play vials. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about the words, just enjoy the music. Um, and it's interesting, for instance, that one of the most... Uh, common types of instrumental music in, in Tudor England uh, is the in nomine. Um, a set, a, a, there's a whole, there's 150 of them roughly, um, and they all use the same plain song. They're all based on a Catholic plain song, a, a piece of chant from, from um, which was originally used by Taverner in the Mass. Um, and then composers rework their counterpoint around this, this Cantus Firmus, which one player holds in, in slow note values. Um, and that was going on right the way through the Elizabethan period into the, the Jacobean period and right through to Henry Purcell, who almost certainly didn't know what its origins were, but everyone wrote in nominees, so he wrote some too. Uh, and that, that's, so there's a piece of, of music that's come straight from the Catholic liturgy and becomes the, the archetype for English instrumental music. And I suppose that also brings us very neatly onto uh, another question of mine, which is really just about this idea of compositional influence. Um, because, as you said, it was this short phrase from, from a, a, a sacred work, a, a mass movement by Taverner, which was then used by a whole host of composers to write these in nominees. And we see that more broadly, I think, both in England and on the continent, composers borrowing phrases, short bits of melody, but sometimes entire compositions by other composers and writing other pieces. And earlier on in the podcast, I talked about how Maillard, although he's a relatively obscure figure, was actually the inspiration for a number of pieces by much better known composers like Palestrina and Lassus. Um, so what was it that 
um, motivated composers to do this, to borrow this kind of music? Um, was it just that they um, were slightly bereft of ideas um, and thought it was a good tune, or is there something a little bit more, um, a bit more prosaic about it? I think it's more interesting than that. I think it, there were two main things. One was to pay tribute to another composer. If you use their music as the basis of your own, it was a way of, of, of honouring it, if you like, and saying, here's a piece I respect and I want to see if I can not necessarily improve it, but develop it in a particular way. So this idea of taking somebody's chanson or motet and building a whole big structure of a mass setting out of it was partly that of, of paying tribute to an earlier piece. But the other one, I think, is, is a, a more competitive streak that the composers saying, here's a piece you wrote. I, I can do more things with it than you even thought of, um, particularly in the earliest days of masses where they add extra voices and, and, and change the texture. Um, we know, for instance, that an Italian composer, not particularly one of the, the highest flight of Italian composers, he was primarily a lute player, Alfonso Ferrabosco, um, came from Italy and worked at Elizabeth's court as a lute player on and off in the 1560s, 1570s. And he and William Byrd actually competed with each other in setting uh, pieces. Uh, and there's, there's some surviving evidence of that. There's, going back to the innomine, there are three innomines by this Italian. They're, it's very rare to get, to get a foreign composer writing innomines. It's very much an English form. But while he was in England, he had a go. And there's one by Alfonso Ferrabosco that's almost identical to one by William Byrd. They use exactly the same material. And I think they were deliberately competing with each other and, and saying, well, OK, I don't know who started it, whether it was Alfonso Ferrabosco who was shown up by Byrd or whether Byrd wrote his and Ferrabosco had a go at imitating it. Um, but they're so close that they, they, they must have known each other's music. And I suppose it's also a good way for composers to learn and to finesse their craft by um, trying to rework other people's musical material. And you mentioned Bird and Ferrabosco, and of course, Bird borrows a little bit um, in other places from both Ferrabosco and Philip van Wilder, who was another continental musician um, at the English court. And you can see that in some of some of his motets, um, where you see the kind of the embryonic seed in the other person's piece, and then you see how Bird has developed it and 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 reshaped it. And that I think I often think is very very interesting the way that different composers use the same basic building blocks, the same kind of melodic material, but do entirely different things with it. Um, you know, often um, with great success, or sometimes less so. Yes, and it's interesting that. Sometimes they didn't know who had written the original music. Um, I mean, for instance, going back to the, the Maillard uh, motets that we recorded from the Dow uh, part books, uh, Maillard's name doesn't appear in Dow. He didn't know who wrote that music. He attributes it to Dr. Tai, Christopher Tai from Ely. Um, and in fact, the piece just before it in Dow's books is by Tai. It's a genuine piece of Tai. Um, whether he he really thought the Maya, which is so different, so different in style, was by the same composer, or he just didn't know, so he, so he thought, oh, well, maybe it's by Ty as well, because it's next to the other one. I don't know. Um, but it's the, the style of Maya's music is so unlike the English music that Dow collects on either side of it. Um, one of the reasons we, we wanted to record it uh, on our joint CD is the fact that it has a different layout of parts from almost any of the other pieces. It's got two equal treble parts that keep crossing over, whereas most English music has just one high part and then four much lower parts. So it was an interesting textural difference in, in, in the recording. Um, and 
obviously Dow, who was a, obviously a skilled uh, lover of music, hadn't picked that up, that it was so different from English music. I, well, and I think that's a whole other podcast talking about these, the funny ways in which um, in different musical tradition, traditions end up um, generating these different musical scorings and textures. And they become so synonymous, I think, with the place or the particular time um, and geographic space that, that the music's written, you know, thinking of English music, but also, uh, you know, continental music in, in different places, different times. But like I said, I think that's a, a whole other podcast right there. And uh, thank you so much, John, for giving us all of that insight um, and for chatting today. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and I hope that we'll be able to come back to you at some point. Well, that'd be um, great. I, I've really enjoyed chatting with you about it and brings back happy memories of recording with the Marion Consort. Yeah, well, yes, indeed. And of, you know, of concert performances as well, including that, that wonderful one in Regensburg, um, which, if memory serves, was about sort of 11pm at night or something. It was extraordinary. And we, we, it was this huge, huge church. And we thought, who on earth is going to turn out at 11.30 at night to listen to a concert of, of Tudor music? And the place was packed. There must have been 800 people there. We've now come to the end of another podcast. As always, thanks so much for listening, and do keep sending in any questions you might have about the Marian Consort, Consort Singing, Renaissance Polyphony, or anything else that's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Marian Consort, or you can sign up to our mailing list on the website. Our recordings of music by Jean Maillard, including the pieces featured in today's podcast, are, like all of our CDs, available from our website at marionconsort.co.uk or you can find them on Spotify and Apple Music. Thanks again for listening and stay safe and well. <laughs>